Hey, everybody, it is time for the 7th Avenue Project. I'm Robert Polly, and today on the show... It's a big reality out there, and we humans are only aware of a small part of it. Well, that may be true, but you humans out there listening will be aware of a much larger part of it if you stay with us, because we're going to be spending the next hour with a guy who wants us to look at the big picture. And I do mean big. Let me introduce him, and we'll get on with the proceedings. So you are Max Tegmark, theoretical physicist, once known as Mad Max. Oh, I'm still as mad as ever. <laughs> they still call you Mad Max? Well, to me, being mad is kind of synonym with uh, not necessarily conforming to all social conventions and pursuing the, the research that you really believe is valuable, regardless of what other people think. The, the sort of research that had a, um, a senior professor write this email to you back in 1998, in your younger days. Dear Max, your crackpot papers are not helping you. First, by submitting them to good journals and being unlucky so that they get published, you remove the funny side of them. I am the editor of a leading journal, and your paper would never have passed. This might not be that important, except that colleagues perceive this side of your personality as a bad omen for future development. You must realize that if you do not fully separate these activities from your serious research, perhaps eliminating them altogether and relegate them to the pub or similar places, you may find your future in jeopardy. Yeah, I, I still remember very vividly uh, when I got that email. And although uh, it didn't shake my conviction that these things I was working on were actually valuable, it did make me very aware of the fact that I needed a strategy because commergents like this can easily be uh, the ones who decide on your next job etc. So I quite on purpose developed this strategy, which I highly recommend also to young people today in similar situations. I call it my Dr. Jekyll, Mr. Hyde strategy. So when people asked me what I was working on at job interviews, I would always talk about the mainstream stuff I did and say that, oh, yeah, I have some eccentric side interests as well. But then, of course, I was the only one who actually kept track of how much time I spent on what. And I made sure I set aside a lot of time to actually work on the things that I was most passionate about. It's worked out remarkably well <laughs> in in the end. It's also ironic because many of the things which back then I was told were too flaky and non-mainstream to work on haven't since become rather mainstream. I talk about this in my book, Our Mathematical Universe, how this is actually not a new phenomenon either. Take the black holes, for example. They were considered very flaky and speculative when they were first proposed, and, and, and now they're totally mainstream. Even the electromagnetic field, which is what I'm teaching a course about this semester here at MIT, and that all uh, freshmen have to take, was considered very flaky when Michael Faraday first had the idea in the 1800s, and people said, what are you talking about, Michael Faraday? You're saying that there's this thing which you cannot see, you cannot touch, but it's still there somehow? I mean, that sounds like ghosts. What a loser you must be. And, and yet the ultimate irony is that not only is it mainstream now, but we realize that the electromagnetic field is the only thing we can see, because light itself is the electromagnetic field. The waving of the electromagnetic field, yeah? Wiggles, ripples, wiggles. waves therein, exactly. So there is no fixed boundary between what's mainstream and what's not. And we simply have to follow our intuition and choose what we work on. And it's, my advice is to have a mix where we spend some fraction of our time on pretty safe investments of our time and, and then take some long shots and swings for the fences as well. Um, 
Well, now that you're, you're safely ensconced in a university job at MIT in the physics department, um, you're able to let your, your freak flag fly proudly um, in books like the one you just mentioned, Our Mathematical Universe, My Quest for the Ultimate Nature of Reality. And it has some of the things um, that, as you mentioned, may have sound wacko maybe a decade or so ago and are now becoming mainstream. It has some things that may still sound a little wacko, but who knows what the future holds. By the way, how do you say wacko in Swedish? <laughs> We have many words for it. Knasig, knep, galen. Oh, I like those. I like those. Um, let's take on some of these ideas. And, and I would say um, if there's one supreme concept that you advance in this book, it is the idea that there are, is such a thing as a multiverse, but not just a multiverse, not just a collection of universes that includes ours, but there are actually multiple multiverses. You are not just a multi verse guy you're a multi multiverse guy <laughs> that's true i'm probably the most multi <laughs> dude out there in fact it it struck me once when i was at a conference on on these related topics that was organized by one of my great heroes martin reese in um, cambridge the different people were talking about parallel universes, and they were actually talking about completely different things. One guy was talking about stuff to do with quantum physics. Another guy was talking about stuff to do with inflation in our baby universe. And um, I felt they really need some kind of classification here. And I started thinking, wait, there are actually two? No, three. No, actually four <laughs> different kinds. That's when I came up with this hierarchy, the level one, level two, level three, level four, which I... I lay out and explore in the book. And by now, the first level is actually pretty non-controversial. And they're roughly organized by how speculative they are. Let's talk about number one first, the uh, level one multiverse. Actually, let's talk about level zero first. Let's talk about our own universe okay. before we talk about others. Because many people take for granted that the word universe just refers to everything that exists. Yeah. In which case, by definition, there can't be anything more. End of discussion. But in fact, when we talk about our universe in astrophysics and cosmology, what we usually refer to is not everything that exists. We instead refer to the spherical region of space from which light has a time to reach us so far during the 13.8 billion years since our Big Bang. And we, we call that our universe because that's everything that we can observe, even in principle, if we were given arbitrary amounts of funding and could build you know, galaxy-sized telescopes, we still couldn't see any farther away than that because light just hasn't reached us yet. If that's our universe, then the question becomes, are there other regions of space of that size beyond that? And so the first way in which that could happen is if space itself is simply bigger than the part of space we can see. And that's not that controversial. Even Euclid had that idea over 2,000 years ago that space just goes on forever. And I think most of us as kids had the same thought. In fact, I got that question from a five-year-old once when I was giving a little presentation in a local kindergarten. This kid said, does space go on forever? And it's you know, so natural to think, how could it not? Because it was, if it doesn't, you know, what, what then? Is there a sign somewhere saying, you know, warning, space ends here? mind the gap. And if so, you know, what's on the other side? But actually, there are interesting ways in which space might not go on forever that Einstein and others discovered, and it's ultimately an experimental question. But we have done a lot of experiments. I've been involved in, in some of them, and so far there's not a shred of evidence for space against space being infinite. And in fact, the best theory we have for space being created, which we can come back to, the one called inflation, Yeah. 
predicts that space is much bigger than what we can see, and generically even infinite. So this is actually pretty mainstream now, the idea that at least space is much bigger than what we can see. And if someone tells you that space ends exactly at the edge of our observable universe, you can prove him or her false by just waiting one year. And, and then, you know, light from one light year farther away, we'll have had time to reach. More stuff keeps coming into view. Right. Uh, yeah, I've been taught, in fact, by your friend and sometime uh, collaborator, Anthony Aguirre, to um, talk about the observable universe when we talk about the Big Bang universe, um, that what came into being 13.7 billion years ago was just a patch of what might be a much larger universe, and that that patch at this point is now about, what, 46 billion light years in, in uh, radius? Uh, yeah, can I just quibble a little bit with, <laughs> with your language usage there? Yeah, yeah. You said the observable universe. I think we should say our observable universe. Oh, yes, yes, okay. Because it's sort of arrogant right. to assume that... By by definition, there can't be any others, and that ours is the one. Thanks. Yeah, in fact, in fact, the cosmic horizon, that is that distance I just quoted, obviously depends on where you are. So if, if we um, head off a few billion light years away, the cosmic horizon is still going to be 46 billion light years away from us, and it's still going to describe a sphere, but a different sphere. It's exactly. It's like if we're out walking on a very foggy day where the visibility is only 100 feet, we feel that we're in the middle of this fog sphere, a radius of 100 feet, because it's all we can see. But we also know that there's nothing magical that happens at the edge of that fog sphere. In fact, if we see a friend of ours standing at the edge of our fog sphere, then she's going to say that we are at the end of her fog sphere. She can see some parts of space that we can't and vice versa. And that's the way we should also think about our, our universe, our observable universe, as just the part that we have access to. And there's no indication that that's the end of anything except our knowledge. Um, so, Max, if space is infinite, if beyond our cosmic horizon, space goes on and on and on, in what sense is that a multiverse? It's a multiverse in the sense that there's then room for many, many, in fact, infinitely many universes of the same size as ours, each with vast numbers of galaxies, stars, and planets. And even though that sounds like a pretty innocent idea, that the space is infinite and uniformly full of stuff, since it's, after all, what we often guessed as kids anyway, it isn't innocent at all, because no matter how unlikely it is that the particles would have been arranged in such a way here that they eventually formed our galaxy, our solar system, Earth, you and me, and led to this conversation taking place, we know that the probability of this happening wasn't zero because it happened here, right? So if we roll the dice in infinitely many other universes as well, we're guaranteed with 100% certainty that this will also have happened somewhere else. And if we start traveling away, we can even estimate that you have to go roughly a Googleplex meters until you get to such a place. It's a long way. Uh, Googleplex is one with a Google zeros, where Google is one with a hundred zeros, but it's, it's much less than infinite. And long before you get there, you'll get to a lot of other solar systems where things uncannily similar to this are happening. You might be interviewing a physicist named Max Schmegmark, <laughs> whose life is otherwise identical to mine. But it's a pretty mind-boggling idea, which just is forced upon us if we assume that space goes on forever. If you take the idea of infinity seriously, if you really take it seriously, you would have to say that not only are there other universes out there identical to ours and universes that are slight variations of ours, but there are infinitely many of them. <laughs> 
Yeah, it is pretty dizzy. And inflation really predicts not just the infinite space part, but also the part about particles starting out somewhat randomly so that all these different outcomes get realized. So next time, next time you're like, oh, no, why did I get this parking ticket just 10 seconds before I came back to my car? You can rephrase this and say, well, you know, actually, I did get the parking ticket in some parallel universes, but not in others. Maybe it was about half of the universes where I got the ticket. And you can ask, well, why am I right now in one of those universes where I got the ticket? Well, actually, you're also in some of the other ones. <laughs> so the only thing you've discovered isn't anything basic about reality, but you've discovered something about your address in reality, that you're just in one of those <laughs> places where you got unlucky. I-, I feel it takes the pressure off a little bit <laughs> from getting it right all the time. <laughs> Maybe you could explain um, a statement you make in your book. Um, if there are indeed many copies of you, and I should say infinitely many copies of you, with identical past lives and memories, this kills the traditional notion of determinism. You can't predict your own future, even if you have complete knowledge of the entire past and future history of the cosmos. The reason you can't is that there's no way for you to determine which of these copies is you. <laughs> yeah, this is actually... A- <laughs> A pretty mind-boggling implication, which we don't have to even get into quantum mechanics and other complicated physics to appreciate. Right? So suppose, suppose you create a computer game, which has all these super-intelligent characters, and you run it on some future very advanced computers. So these characters in your game are actually self-aware themselves and feel conscious, just like us, for just for argument's sake. Now, suppose you actually have this really big game world where there is two identical copies of, of one particular character. Suppose you actually explain to both of those characters how the whole game works. You show them the source code and everything, so they know the whole state of the, of the game world. They still can't know which of those two is them, right, by just introspecting. They can find out later by maybe getting new observations that they haven't made yet. And it's the same for us. Even if you knew exactly the entire contents of all of space, if I find out that there are seven Max Tegmarks who have all had the same life up until now, there's no way for me to know which one of them I am <laughs> until in the future. And if their lives diverge eventually, then it's going to seem random by the time I, I figure this out. So what we're saying here is that actually you can experience what subjectively feels like randomness, even if there's nothing random at all about about physics. In fact, I like to do an even simpler example, if I just sedate you. And what's the what's, uh, closest hospital to where you live? Uh, Dominican Hospital. So we take you down to Dominican Hospital, and before we sedate you, we tell you that we're going to make a perfect clone of you. And we're going to put one of you in room one and one of you in, in room two, and you're going to both wake up at the same time tomorrow morning. And you will remember this conversation and, and all. So tomorrow morning you wake up, both of the yous wake up, of course, and uh, I come in, I talk with one of these yous and, uh, and say, hey, do you want to bet some money about whether you're in room one or two? What, what odds are you going to give me? <laughs> you, you have to give me 50-50, right, because there is no way for you to know whether you're in room one or room two, but you know that there's a copy of you in each and they feel the same way. And by the time you find out by going outside and looking at the room number, it's going to seem like a random number to you. It's either one or two with 50% chance. And in this fashion, cloning actually lets you feel 
something that subjectively appears random. So I actually go much farther in the book and argue that everything that feels random in physics ultimately is caused by some kind of cloning, and that the laws of nature themselves aren't random. So there's this famous controversy where Einstein argued with Niels Bohr about whether God plays dice or not and whether there's anything random in nature. My guess is that there is nothing random, and the reason things feel random is because we live in this big reality where there are many different copies of us, and it feels random whenever we find out more about what copy we are. Well, can we come back to that when we talk about the Level 3 multiverse? With pleasure. All righty, let's do that. So I am left feeling overwhelmed by the Level 1 multiverse. The possibilities um, are enough to make me feel, I don't know, queasy. Uh, I know it's a myth that mathematicians who confronted infinity were driven mad by the idea. George Cantor, the great theorist of infinity, did have some mental issues, but I don't think it was because of the overwhelming idea of infinity. But I got to tell you, it is a deeply disorienting thing. As disorienting, I think, for me, as anything in all of math and physics. I completely share that sentiment. But we have to remember that just because things are disorienting and counterintuitive, it doesn't mean that they're wrong. If science has taught me anything so far in my career, in fact, is that we should expect the ultimate nature of reality, whatever it is, to feel very counterintuitive. In fact, Charles Darwin could have predicted that, because he predicted that we have intuition precisely for those things that had survival value for our ancestors. That's why we have such good intuition for, for example, the parabolic orbits of baseballs, because if we didn't have good intuition for that, you know, we would get cleaned out of the gene pool the first time someone threw a rock at us, and wouldn't make good hunters either. But if, as soon as we use technology to perceive things beyond the human scale that our ancestors had access to, we should predict that our intuition should break down. And look what's happened. We've tested this again and again. We've found that if you study stuff traveling much faster than us near the speed of light, time slows down. Totally counterintuitive. If you look at things that are much smaller than us, they can be in multiple places at once. Totally weird. If you look at things which are much bigger than us and we find black holes, you know, anyone who thinks black holes are totally intuitive might not have fully understood them. If we get into the habit of just dismissing all theories that seem weird to us, we're pretty much guaranteed to dismiss the true theory whenever we come across it. Well, you know, and it strikes me also that the things that we consider, quote, intuitive, are not things we necessarily understand at all. They're just things we don't examine. They're things we get used to and take for granted. So Newtonian physics, I mean, when I first learned about that, it seemed very strange. Um, why do Newton's laws of motion apply? There's nothing intrinsically normal about that compared to, let's say, quantum physics. It's just that we're sort of used to it. That's true, and in fact, they don't apply exactly either, I right. discovered. right. One of the most important lessons of science, I feel, is to always question our preconceptions, no matter how intuitive they seem and no matter how famous or influential the person is expressing that thing. And most importantly of all, we have to question the authority of our own preconceived ideas. Our habits, yeah, of thought. Um, let's go to the level two multiverse then. And this is a multiverse that has to do with cosmic inflation. Rather than you know, exhaustively reviewing the theory of inflation, I would refer some listeners to a conversation I had with uh, Anthony Aguirre, again, your friend, about this, in fact, about the idea of eternal inflation. 
you know, current cosmological theory proposes, thanks to Alan Guth, uh, who invented this idea, that very, very early on, early in the sense of our observable universe, um, our observable universe was a teensy-weensy speck. And then suddenly Mm -hmm. it blew up, it ballooned into something macroscopic, something a gazillion times larger in a gazillionth of a second. And this is due to um, something called inflation. It sounds ridiculous, but it has a good mathematical argument behind it. It accords with physics, uh, physical theory, field theory, and so on, and uh, general relativity. Um, and by the way, our universe continued to expand, but at a much slower rate after this micro-microsecond of really furious inflation, and it continues to expand to this day. But if that's true, there's no reason to think that that isn't happening elsewhere, that it hasn't happened forever, and that the little speck that we were and that grew into our observable universe isn't just one small pocket universe among many that are currently inflating or that stopped inflating like ours. Is that a good way of putting it? That's an excellent summary. And as I explain in detail in Chapter 5 of the book, our universe really began the same way that we people did. We were one cell and then two cells, four, eight, 16, 32, and so on. We just kept doubling. And if we had kept doubling at that rate for nine months, it would have been very painful for our mothers because we would have weighed more than our entire universe after nine months. So fortunately, by the time we were about the size of a tangerine, we stopped this doubling and grew only at a more leisurely rate. And interestingly, the simplest version of inflation says that our universe did exactly the same thing. It kept doubling furiously until it was about the size of a tangerine. It did it a lot faster, though, whereas we doubled once per day. Or the universe might have doubled once every trillionth of a trillionth of a trillionth of a second or something of that sort. So that way it was able to start with something extremely small and create something vast, which is flying apart, basically creating a Big Bang. And as you said correctly, if you have a physical mechanism for creating something, whether it be a Big Bang or a baby or a car, it would be pretty natural for that mechanism to produce more than one of them. A car factory usually produces more than one car, and many parents produce more than one baby. So if there's a universe creation mechanism, it's not that crazy an idea that it would produce many universes, many many big bangs. And that is the level two multiverse. They each have their own bang. They can actually coincide just fine even in one single infinite space, but you, but you can actually never get from the part of space that's inside of one of these level two multiverses to another because it's separated by a region that's still undergoing this this crazy expansion. So even if you went at the speed of light forever, you would never get there if you have a, an impatient uh, child in the back of your spaceship saying, are we there yet? You'll be like, oh, just one more week. you know. And then, are we there yet? Oh, just two more weeks. <laughs> because you keep getting farther from your destination as more space is created. So that's the level two multiverse. In a nutshell, direct consequence of many um, pretty well-motivated inflation models. By the way, uh, Max, you said uh, inflation, this really rapid period of of, um, ancient inflation, stopped when our universe, our observable universe, was the size of a tangerine. I've often heard grapefruit. Um, Is there a citrus problem here? (laughs) You're very astute. There are many different models where this stops at slightly different sizes of fruit. (laughs) And so that's at the level of detail where... We really need still better data from our experiments to sort things out. Right now, 
inflation is the most popular theory for what happened early on, but we absolutely could not say that there's proof that it happened. The reason it's the most popular one is because it's predicted a bunch of stuff that has been tested experimentally. For example, that there is a Big Bang, that space is very big and kind of uniform, and that it has structure in it, clumped in a certain way, and that, that space has the nice simple properties that we learned about in high school geometry, and where the angles in a triangle add up to 180 degrees. All the stuff like that we've tested, but uh, there are additional tests that people are trying very hard to make now. And the most spectacular of them is that this process is so violent, this rapid doubling, that it actually creates ripples in the very fabric of space itself called gravitational waves. Gravitational waves, if one flies through the room where you're sitting, what's behind it would look warped because this warping would bend the light rays. And we can look for these gravitational waves from inflation by looking at very distant images, baby pictures of our universe the way it was 13.8 billion years ago in what we call the cosmic microwave background and see if they look warped. And sensationally, last March of 2014, this BICEP2 team announced that they had found this holy grail, this smoking gun of inflation. They had found these gravitational waves that were of order a billion light years long, and this instantly became world news. But then, since then, it's turned out that these claims were overstated. The evidence wasn't as good as they thought, and uh, we still don't know whether what they saw had some contribution from the baby universe in there or whether it was all caused by this contamination from other radiation. From dust, came from yeah. our own galaxy. Dust. Yeah. Uh, in fact, we did a show on, on the BICEP2 results, and uh, like a lot of uh, people, um, we had to backtrack. I added a little note to the, uh, to the website saying that, oh, gosh, you know, a year later, uh, it turns out that the, um, the proof of uh, early uh, gravitational waves from inflation uh, is not so strong after all because of this dust that interfered with the signals. Uh, and th- so there's really no way to know. It's not disproof, but it's not proof either. But this brings up a very important question that we really need to talk about, which is, is this whole conversation topic of parallel universes, by definition, unscientific, something that can never be proved or tested and therefore shouldn't be talked about by scientists? Right. Or not? And, and this is linked to why I got that... <laughs> angry letter from that professor you mentioned in the beginning. And it's very easy to answer that question, actually, because parallel universes are not theories. They're predictions of certain theories, theories like inflation. And for a theory to be scientific, you don't need to be able to observe everything it predicts. You just need to be able to observe at least one thing it predicts. And if that's wrong, you know, the whole theory is falsified, ruled out, you know, gone. So inflation right now despite the whole bicep flap, is the theory that's taken the most seriously for what happened early on. And it predicts a lot of things we've tested. It also predicts that space is much bigger than what we can see. So if we take inflation seriously, then we have to also take seriously these parallel universes. That's the way the logic goes. And it's very obvious that inflation is a scientific theory because the whole controversy we're having now about gravitational waves and bicep and all this has all the hallmarks of a science controversy, right? What is it that people are arguing about? Character assassination things and philosophy? No, they're arguing about measurements. Was, were these volts they measured in this detector caused by dust, or did they come from baby universe? 
And how is it being resolved? Well, by new data from other measurements. And other teams are coming in and trying to repeat the measurements. It's a beautiful controversy, <laughs> very scientific controversy, because inflation is a scientific theory. And, and the cool thing is, in science, if you take a theory seriously, or you're logically forced to take seriously all its predictions, not just some of them. It's not like with coffee, where you can say, well, you know, I want the flavor of coffee, but I don't want the caffeine, so I'm going to opt out of that and get decaf. You, know, you can't do that with inflation. If you, <laughs> you can't say, oh, I, want, I like the things that inflation predicted about space being flat and expanding and yada, yada, but I'm going to opt out of the parallel universes. If you don't like that prediction, well, then you have to come up with a different theory, which doesn't have any parallel universes, but can still explain everything that inflation does as well. So, so to sum up this idea of the level two multiverse, the inflationary multiverse, it's easy to imagine a grand multiverse that consists of areas that are still inflating at unimaginable speed. And because of that, no matter has really had a chance to form yet. And this is some kind of you know, primal goo, right? And yet mm -hmm. little patches might have slowed down, just like our observable universe, where things condensed and became stars, planets, human beings, or whatever. And there could be infinitely many such patches. And each, each of those patches could be a level one multiverse. Is that right? Exactly. So within one level two multiverse, you can have all these level one parallel universes, and you have this fantastic hierarchy. And if you think about it that way, you know, it's not really that crazy a thought that there could be more stuff out there than uh, we have access to. Now, there's some amount of stuff which exists physically. We don't know how much yet, but consider all that stuff that exists. And then how much of that do we expect that a human, a typical human, should be able to have access to? Uh, there is absolutely no deep principle of physics or philosophy that says that humans should automatically be able to observe everything that exists. In fact, I think that would be a very arrogant assumption, kind of like an ostrich with its head in the sand saying that, you know, if I can't see something, it can't exist. Now, I can hear someone uh, who has followed us thus far saying, wait a minute, the level one multiverse you guys were talking about a few minutes ago is infinite, potentially, and you're now saying that there could be infinitely many such universes inside an even more <laughs> infinite multiverse, a level two multiverse. How can you have infinity inside infinity? And the fact is, math has no problem with that at all, right? That's the famous Hilbert Hotel story where you can have infinitely many guests that keep fitting in, you can keep fitting in more. Yeah, infinity <laughs> is really big. In fact, the whole level one and level two multiverse can still fit handily into one single space-time. There's a single space with the three dimensions and a time dimension. And inside of that, you can have what seems to its inhabitants as an infinite number of infinite spaces. Thanks to uh, general relativity, that's perfectly allowed. And in fact, the math allows a thing that you describe in your book um, that, honestly, I don't quite comprehend at this moment, that you could have an infinite space-time inside a volume that seems tiny to someone on the outside. So a little tiny speck could contain infinity. <laughs> yeah, that, that is one of the more mind-boggling uh, things to come out of, of general relativity theory. All is relative, as Einstein said. And uh, what seems small to one person can actually seem vast to someone inside of it. It reminds me a little bit of uh, the ending of Men in Black, where they realize that their whole cosmos is contained within this little ball in a locker in Grand Central Station. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> 
All right. Well, um, if people are still with us, let's proceed to the level three multiverse. And this one has to do with quantum mechanics and a classic problem in quantum mechanics, what's called the measurement problem. Yeah, this is a wonderfully controversial topic. I I label my book chapters by mainstream, controversial, and extremely controversial. And, and what we're going to talk about now goes in the, in the medium controversial <laughs> category. Because people, with quantum mechanics, on the one hand, it's a super successful theory that explains how to build cell phones and computers and pretty much all of the advanced technology we have today. Yet, people have argued for about 100 years about what it really means, and there's still no consensus. That's the measurement problem. And in short, it comes down to the fact that the master equation of quantum mechanics, the Schrodinger equation, has nothing random in it at all. It just says that if you know the state of the world, which in quantum mechanics jargon is described by this mathematical thing called a wave function, then you can figure out what that wave function is going to do and the state of the world is going to do for all future times by solving Schrodinger's equation. He liked it so much he had it engraved on his tombstone that I once visited. He's a hero of yours. Oh, I love the guy. Yeah, he's so brilliant. And yet, when we make experiments with quantum mechanics, random things seem to happen. There are certain things which seems impossible to predict. The easiest way to see it is We've all experienced being indoors somewhere at night and seeing our own reflection in a window while at the same time being able to also see a street light outside through the window, right? Yeah. You must have seen this. And that means sure. that some of the light, when it strikes the glass, will go through while some of it bounces. We also know that light is made of these little particles called photons. So how does a given photon know when it hits the glass whether it's supposed to bounce or <laughs> go through? You can measure. It turns out that... If it hits the window straight on, it's 4% roughly bounces back. 4% of the time, a photon will bounce back. 96% of the time, it goes through. How does it decide which it's going to do? First, people thought, well, maybe there are like little holes in the glass between the atoms, and you know, whether it goes through or not depends on whether it hits in one of those holes. But you can prove that that cannot be an explanation, because photons don't even see holes that are that small, smaller than their wavelengths. And the actual <laughs> conclusion that's been arrived at from very careful experimenting is it's, it seems completely random whether a light particle actually goes through the glass or not. And there are a large number of other experiments you can do as well that are like that. And in fact, the best random numbers we can buy now and use for encryption with our computers are generated by so-called quantum random number generators where you take advantage of some process like this. So why is that? How on earth can our universe just be like flipping coins and to explain how you could get something random happening, even though the Schrodinger equation that's supposed to govern everything doesn't allow for anything random. The Schrodinger equation just says you plug in the state of the world now and you can calculate the state of the world tomorrow. Another founding figure of quantum mechanics, Niels Bohr, said that there should be a little footnote, like in those legal disclaimers on the Schrodinger equation, that says that this equation applies only when nobody is observing anything. But when there's an observation happening, then somehow something random takes place. And something which might have otherwise ended up in being in two places at once randomly picks one of the outcomes and shows up only there. And he gave a nice cookbook recipe for how to calculate probabilities and stuff like that, and which works quite well. But people have felt deeply uncomfortable with this ever since the Bohr-Einstein debates, uh, where Einstein said he didn't believe that God played dice, because we like the idea that there should be some equations describing rigorously 
what happens. And if, if the Schrodinger equation applies except when it doesn't, well, then there should be some equation saying when, when the exception happens. Some equations defining what is an observation and, and then what happens. And well, Max, let's, uh, let's, let's drill down a little bit on the Schrodinger equation just for a moment so people understand what you're talking about. This is um, the master equation of quantum physics. In, in maybe the simplest case, it might describe um, the state now and in the future of a single particle, let's say, but not as some numbers representing the exact position and, and motion of that particle, but rather as a wave of probabilities, Right. Well, that's the controversial part already. So in, in the kind of physics that we learn in high school, we learn that there are all these particles, they have positions and velocities. And if you know what the positions and velocities are now, you can figure out what they're going to do for all future time solving Newton's equations. So perfectly deterministic, right. like a clockwork universe. Right. In quantum mechanics, it turns out that particles don't actually have unique positions. Electrons can be in several places at once in what's called a quantum superposition. The micro-world is this strangely schizophrenic, and we have to just suck it up and get used to it. So there is this thing called the wave function, which tells you the extent to which the electron is in different places. But once you know that, you can calculate what this wave function is going to be for all future times, with no randomness whatsoever. The big debate is, well, why do things nonetheless seem random? Niels Bohr basically said that well, somehow when you look at something, something sort of magical happens. It can't be mathematically defined, but you kind of know an observation when you see one, and then random things take place. So in its pure state, let's say, a particle is described by the Schrodinger equation as existing in multiple places at once uh, according to this wave function. When you go to measure that particle, you always find it in one place or the other, just like a macroscopic object, the things we're used to seeing. Um, and so this measurement problem is an attempt to reconcile those two things, that it's supposed to be in multiple places at once, and yet when you look at it, it's always in one place or another, right? That's right, and that made a lot of people think that maybe the mind has something to do with it. Maybe yeah. it's the consciousness that causes yeah. randomness. Maybe it's the measurement itself. Some people felt very uneasy about this, such as Einstein, but it wasn't until 1957 that a really cogent alternative was proposed by an American grad student named Hugh Everett. And what he said was really shocking. He said, let's analyze what happens when you see that photon from your own reflection in the window. If the photon is actually both outside and inside the window, it's going to interact with your retina and you will have this experience, perhaps. So now you're both having the experience and you're not having the experience. The experience corresponds to how the particles in your brain are arranged, right, to give rise to that particular experience. So now, now it's not just the photon anymore that's in two places at once, but it's your own particles in your vi visual cortex and elsewhere in your brain that are in two places at once. Suppose you actually also decided that you were either going to go for dinner now or not, depending on what you observed in this experiment. Then before long, your whole, all the particles in your body are either in a restaurant having dinner or they're still back in your living room. So you are in two places at once. So, so what Everett realized is that the laws of physics are such that you get weirdness amplification. You, you can start with, if you have just one particle in two places at once, before long you can have a human in two places at once. And he realized that how that's actually going to seem to you is as if you have been cloned into two parallel yous and you, you just find yourself being one of them. 
because each one of those views, the one having dinner, for example, will be completely unaware that there's another version which is back home. And it's, that's why it seems random to the observer when they find out what's happened. And it's exactly the same way that before we even mentioned quantum mechanics, when we talked about you going down to your local hospital and getting cloned, right? Something you would experience subjective randomness, even though there was nothing random at all. Um, yeah, so so um, the Copenhagen interpretation that um, that's named after um, Niels Bohr and Werner uh, Heisenberg, who were working, I guess, in Denmark at the time they started right. uh, coming up with these theories, was that there's this discontinuity between the micro world and the macro world. In the micro world, things are fuzzy and spread out in multiple places at once, superposition, uh, you know, is a natural state. But in the macro world, the one we see, things are always in one place at one time. Uh, in the way we're used to seeing, and there's some weirdness that that kicks in when um, when you observe particles that causes them to flip from the quantum state to the the macro state we're used to. But Hugh Everett, the guy you're talking about, who is a grad student at Princeton, came up with this so-called many worlds hypothesis. He said, "No, we live in a Schrodinger world. I mean, everything is in multiple states. It's just us who can't see it, and we can't see it because we're in multiple states too. And one of us is seeing one thing." Another of us is seeing another thing. One Max Tegmark is seeing the particle in one place, and another Max Tegmark is seeing the particle in another place. That's right. And I feel that Everett's insight there was not only very deep and, I think, correct, but it's also very much in the tradition of, of scientific progress, where you go from dualism to unification. People used to think that there was matter and there was energy, and they were different. And then Einstein actually unified them and showed that they were actually just the same thing. And we thought that space and time were two very different things. Einstein unified them into space-time. We unified electricity and magnetism into electromagnetism and so on. And, and here, Bohr was talking about there being the micro-world and the macro-world, and they're kind of different and fit together in some complicated way. And Everett was like, no, there's just one world. It's just very big, and we don't have access to all of it at any one time. That's why all these weird things happen. So this is very analogous to what we said earlier about the level one multiverse. We're just living in a reality that's so big that uh, we can't see all of it. In the first, in that case, for level one, we were just talking about three-dimensional space and how there are other parts of three-dimensional space that are too far away to see. Now we're talking about this space of quantum mechanics called Hilbert space, which has infinitely many dimensions and is more counterintuitive. But the idea is exactly the same. It's a, it's a big reality out there, and we humans are only aware of a small part of it. Now, now Max, one thing I don't totally understand in the many worlds hypothesis is there a splitting, then, that occurs during the moment of observation due to this sort of psychological incapacity of ours to see or to understand uh, that things can be in, in superposition? Is there an event that happens that causes the universe to split every time an observation is made? Or is, is there somehow... No. There's no significance to observation at all? There's no splitting. There's no splitting. And in a way, the name Many Worlds is a little bit unfortunate. There's yeah. only one reality... One physical reality. It's just that what we call a world is a very small part from our vantage point of this bigger reality. What's so special about observation is that observation is the moment when this schizophrenic quantum behavior of some little particle that you're looking at gets translated into some actual quantum uh, 
superposition of you, of your brain state, of your body. Right. So before that, you were in one place, and the particle was maybe in two places. After that, you also, your particles are also in two different arrangements. And, and you can also work out that this is a very, very important breakthrough that happened long after Everett. In 1970, a German Hans Dieter Zay first figured this out. It's called decoherence. He discovered that from the Schrodinger equation itself, you can calculate that there's a kind of censorship effect that prevents you from ever seeing any of the quantum weirdness, except when when um, the quantum weirdness is kept secret. So as soon as as soon as something else finds out about what's going on, the secret's out, and you, the quantum effects are gone. And it turns out that for a tiny little thing like a particle, we can do experiments here at MIT where we isolate them so well that the secret is kept and we can get strange quantum effects and interference patterns and quantum computing and all sorts of great quantum stuff. But when you have a big thing like a person, your location is like impossible to keep secret from the rest of the world because you're constantly being bombarded with photons from the light around you, by air molecules in your room, every time something bounces off of you, it finds out where you are, right? And because of that, you can prove mathematically you will be completely unaware of any other version of you that's somewhere else. It's this process of decoherence completely hides all the quantum weirdness, and that's why we feel that we're always in one place. I'm guessing that people are going to have trouble with your idea of keeping things secret, but what you're really, that's maybe a little bit of a metaphor for, for what is actually a mathematical effect of, uh, of, of sort of wave-like interference or something? That's right. These sort of quantum effects that are so useful for many of our technologies, they only work when you keep the system doing this completely isolated from everything else. If something else is interfering with it, messing with it, and finding out what it's doing, the effect gets ruined. Right. And, 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 you know, when we say finding out what it's doing, obviously you don't mean some conscious agent necessarily spying on it. What you mean is that any system that sort of interacts with it um, could be used for measurement, right? So, so you, can, you can say it that way, but you don't necessarily mean it's used for measurement. You just mean anything interfering with it. But I actually mean secret in, in the sense that it is the information that right. matters. Right, right. Because information can be copied to something else which is not conscious, and it'll still spoil everything. Right. We know that right. we can have a computer that can send information over the Internet to another computer, neither which is conscious, but right. information really was transmitted. Right. And if information gets transmitted out of uh, this quantum system that gives away what it was doing, <laughs> then you can prove that you're never going to observe any quantum weirdness. Right. So, yeah, I just wanted to make it clear that we are not talking about an effect that's dependent on consciousness or on what we normally think of as observation. What we're really talking about is whether a system is isolated or whether it is messily, you know, uh, involved with other systems, and that's when decoherence happens, right? I'm, you're right, and I'm actually very glad that you, you mentioned this, because you just explained now why people thought consciousness had something to do with it. You know, it's not, not in fact, what's important is not necessarily that the system that gets the information is conscious. What matters is that the system gets the information, period. Yeah. So it turns out that if, whether it's a human or a mouse or some other kind of detector, that finds out 
in any of those cases, the, the, the quantum weirdness goes away. And it's pretty natural, therefore, that we initially mistook what mattered for being sort of a human observer seeing something. Um, so what Hugh Everett did, again, with the unfortunately named many worlds hypothesis, because there is only one world, but what he did was say that, you know, let's take the Schrodinger equation really seriously. And if we do, we should realize that we ourselves are in superposition, that everything is, that there's no way to visualize this. I mean, there's really no way to draw a picture of this, but that the world around us, though we see a kind of definite, um, defined quality, things are in one place and not another, that is really an illusion. What's really happening is overlapping um, realities, uh, overlapping states, excuse me, spread throughout you know, space-time, or, or Hilbert space, really, is what I should be saying, this abstract mathematical space. Yeah, or the, way, the way I like to think about it is there's one reality, but it's very big. It's so big <laughs> that it contains within it all these different storylines, all right. these different versions of right. your life right. playing right. out. And all of this is true of the multiverses we've described already. Level 2 and Level 1 have this many-worlds quality as well with inside of them, yeah? Yeah, this is what's so... Ironic, I think, because despite all the controversy about Everett and his quantum stuff, you know, which wasn't great for his his own career, you know, it turns out that you don't get anything new weird out of this that hadn't already happened at level one. (laughs) All the possible versions of you getting parking tickets and not getting parking tickets and meeting the great love of your life and not meeting the great love of your life and so on already happens at level one. So there's nothing really new in level three. What's new is just that we, we find that it's extremely hard to come up with a theory of physics that simply explains everything we need to explain without, and everything we can see, without predicting the existence of more that we can't see. It happened both when we zoomed out and tried to understand the cosmos out there through inflation, and it happens again when we zoom in and try to understand the micro-world of quantum mechanics. Not at all what we expected, right, to study small things and and be told that reality is even bigger. But that's the, that's the message we come to yet again. So uh, before we um, move on to our final, our final multiverse, the level four multiverse, let's recap just a little bit. The level one multiverse is this infinite expanse of perhaps a single unified space-time that contains infinitely many versions of sort of universes like ours. The yeah, actually, it doesn't even have to be infinite. As soon as you have yeah. at least two universes, it's a level one multiverse. Sure, sure. They're just regions of space that are so far, far away that light from there hasn't reached us yet. Gotcha, but it's all part of one sort of space-time continuum, whereas yes. the level two multiverse has different regions of space-time with very different qualities. Um, you have a lovely way of saying it. You say that um, students in a level one parallel in level one parallel universes would learn the same thing in physics class because the laws of physics are the same throughout this vast expanse, but different things in history class because, of course, um, in these various parts of space time, uh, different events have happened and all kinds of variants uh, if it's in, if it's infinite at least. Then, though, le- uh, students in level two parallel universes would learn different things in physics class as well as in history class. Yeah, and, and that's because even if there actually is only one kind of law of physics that holds throughout space-time, throughout the whole level two multiverse, many of the things 
that we think of as fundamental laws of physics have turned out to be more incidental laws that are not actually fundamental. For example, suppose string theory or loop quantum gravity or whatever is the fundamental law of physics that governs everything. If it turns out that there's more than one solution to these equations, then inflationists can actually produce vast expansions of space where each of these solutions are implemented. And in one part of space, you might learn in school that there are six kind of quarks. and some other part of space, you might learn that there are actually eight kinds of quarks. I like to compare this with a fish swimming in the ocean who first thinks it's just the law of physics that, you know, when you stop flapping your fins, eventually you slow down and so on. But then his friend, who's a very smart fish, realizes that there's actually some sort of substance there. And he studies this substance and realizes it's made of these water molecules, and he works out the equations for water. And he finds that they have three solutions. One is the liquid kind that they know, but then there's also these other two kinds, which he calls ice and steam. And the first <laughs> fish says, ah, oh, you're crazy, you know, nutcase. You'll never make it in the, on the academic job market. But, but of course, <laughs> we know that there are other places where water comes in liquid form and solid form. And in the same way, you might laugh at this fish, but the last laugh, laugh might be on us, because it might be that our own space is also better thought of as a substance that can freeze and evaporate and turn into other forms. In fact, string theory suggests that there might be 10 to the power of 500 different ways in which our space can be. And uh, it's still the same laws of physics, but as long as you have a different solution to what kind of space you're in, you're going to learn very different things in physics class. And I should add that in level three parallel universes, students would learn the same in physics class, but different things in history class also. That's precisely right. And, and to summarize where these three levels of parallel universes are, the level one are simply far away in space. Level two are even farther away in, the, in our same space in that you couldn't get there if you traveled at the speed of light forever. And the third level are far away instead in this mathematical Hilbert space of, of quantum physics. They're right here in a sense, but they're unreachable um, yes. by us. Well, Max, we have left the grandest multiverse of all for last. This is one that I think is close to your heart. This is one I think that is your baby in a way. Um, it's something you describe in the mathematical universe hypothesis, ma. I, I would have hoped you'd call it mutt, the mathematical universe theory, but I guess it's not quite a theory at this point. <laughs> The idea itself that there's something deeply mathematical about our world, of course, isn't mine. It goes down back to Plato and Galileo and other titans. In fact, Galileo already 400 years ago famously said that our universe is like a grand book written in the language of mathematics. Mm -hmm. Because he was so impressed by how many mathematical patterns and regularities scientists had found by 400 years ago. And, of course, they just kept on coming. You know, we got, by studying mathematical equations of Newton, Urbain Leverrier, the French astronomer, realized that Uranus wasn't moving the way it was supposed to, and he predicted that there would be another planet, Neptune, which was then discovered through math. Right? Just a few decades later, James Clerk Maxwell, when he worked out these equations of electromagnetism that I'm teaching here at MIT this spring to the freshmen, predicted, again through math, that if you built a certain kind of device, you could use it to um, send information 
through empty space at the speed of light. And do you own a cell phone? Yeah. Yeah, predicted through mass. <laughs> and, and Peter Higgs, even more recently, sat down with the most advanced mathematical patterns we had discovered so far, these equations of the standard model of particle physics, and calculated and calculated and figured out that if we built the most sophisticated machine ever built in Geneva and, and used it to crash particles together near the speed of light in a certain way, we would there discover a new particle. And, and you know how that went? He won a uh, free trip to visit my hometown of Stockholm, right? So, so we, <laughs> for a Nobel everybody Prize, agrees yes. that for whatever reason, mathematics is very powerful and there's something mathematical about nature. And I explore in my book, A Mathematical Universe, the whole spectrum of views that people have on this. Some people feel that math is just something we humans have invented, some useful bag of tricks maybe, but it doesn't tell us really anything fundamental. It's an abstract description of physical reality, something that we use to understand what's out there. Some people would tone it down even more and say it's just an abstract approximate description. Uh -huh. Right, right, right. But, it, but that nature isn't really mathematical in any way. Then there are people who would go a little farther and say that it actually is a description, but that's all it is. You have a whole spectrum of different views there that I talk about. And the most extreme on the other side is my view. My guess is that actually not only is our universe kind of sort of a little bit mathematical, or maybe at least <laughs> somewhat describable by mathematics, but that it actually is completely, 100% mathematical, that our universe is, in fact, a mathematical structure, not just described by one. And what I mean by that in plain English is that our universe not only has some mathematical properties, but that it has only mathematical properties. And if you think about that a little bit, it sounds very nutty at first, because if you just look around you where you're sitting right now, surely the properties you see around you mostly don't seem particularly mathematical. There are no giant numbers written in the sky or anything like that. So what am I even talking about? Yet I know as a physicist that everything you can see right now is made of quarks and electrons. And what properties does an electron have? Well, it has the property minus one, one-half, one, and so on. And even though we physicists have geeky names for these properties like electric charge and spin and lepton number, the electron doesn't care what you call them, these properties. They're just numbers. They're mathematical properties. And as far as we have been able to tell, none of the particles that make up everything around us have any properties at all, actually, other than numbers. The only difference between a top quark and a down quark and an electron are what particular numbers the properties are. And what if that's all the stuff in space, having only mathematical properties, then what about space itself? What properties does space have? Well, the property three. <laughs> that's the largest number of pencils you can hold perpendicular <laughs> to one another. And we have, again, a geeky name for that. We call it the, the dimensionality of space. But again, the space doesn't care what you call it. The property is just... Three. Well, well, Max, let me jump in here, and I can, you know, just to um, play devil's advocate and give you the um, the argument you've heard many, many times, which is that um, okay, we can conceive of any number of mathematical entities, and only some of them are physically instantiated, uh, and only some of them really make it into physics. And there's a difference between physics and mathematics, partly because. Even if physics is mathematical, it's only a small subset of all the mathematical possibilities, right? 
Well, that's a, that's a common viewpoint, which yeah, mine is different. What I'm arguing for in the book, all the things that exist mathematically exist physically as well. I argue that, in fact, mathematical existence and physical existence are fundamentally the same thing. And so when you say that our particular universe just seems like a particular kind of mathematical object, you know, maybe it's some operator algebra in a Hilbert space, maybe it's a three-plus-one-dimensional pseudo-Ramanian manifold, or you pick your favorite mathematical physics jargon, then um, I would just say that, well, that particular mathematical structure is the one that we find ourselves in now that we're having this conversation. Other mathematical structures are their own level four multiverse. And, for example, if string theory is wrong in our world, but there, but it's mathematically consistent, and there is a mathematical structure that corresponds to it, then I would say, well, <laughs> there is this other level four multiverse ruled by string theory, and if there are string theorists there, they're going to be happier than here. So anything that's mathematically possible is willy-nilly real, uh, as real as anything we consider to be material. But are false mathematical concepts also real? Is anything... No. That's quite interesting. You know, mathematical existence is very different from just any random vague thing you can think about. You can imagine all kinds of things that aren't even all that well-defined. We often yeah. dream about things like this, and we wake up the next morning, and we're like, wait, what really happened there? That didn't make any sense. So contrary-wise, mathematicians often spend years trying to prove that some mathematical thing even is self-consistent. And Hilbert, the famous mathematician, said that mathematical existence is freedom from contradiction. And it's actually quite hard to do that. So, for example, Plato, when he got really interested in figuring out how many perfectly regular three-dimensional shapes you could make with identical faces, he came up with that there are these five of them that are now called totonic solids, right? The tetrahedron, the cube, the octahedron, the dodecahedron, and the icosahedron. And even though he had the freedom to... Uh, invent whatever language he wanted to describe them. He could have called the dodecahedron the schmodecahedron had he wanted to, right? He did not have the freedom to invent the sixth one. There are only five platonic solids, period. So it's in that sense that mathematicians often feel that they're discovering rather than inventing these mathematical structures. They're discovering the structures and they're inventing language for describing them. And what I'm claiming corresponds to a physical realities are or rather level four multiverses are these structures that simply are out there that exist. And you make no distinction between mathematical structures and physical structures. I argue in the book that if you buy into this mathematical universe hypothesis, which of course are <laughs> free to not buy into, then yes, then you're forced into this conclusion that you said, that mathematical and physical existence are the same thing. And what's nice about this is if, if this is actually true, it actually gives an explanation for why we keep discovering all these mathematical regularities. It's not so strange if things are ultimately all mathematical, because we know that we can often approximate some complicated math with some simpler math. For example, we can approximate Einstein's math in general relativity with Newton's math for sure. classical mechanics. And what we've just been doing all along in physics is we've kept discovering more and more accurate mathematical approximations to the correct math, which we haven't found yet. So the misconception, once again, comes down to our brain's limitations. The fact that I'm looking around me right now and seeing what I would call physical objects, 
And I think of that as divorce from the conceptual objects of mathematics. That's my problem. That's not a true distinction in the world in its most fundamental sense. Yeah, I would agree with you. You would? Yes. <laughs> <laughs> well, I was trying to summarize your viewpoint, so I'm glad you agree with it. It's, it's, it's just, so, of course, this is super controversial, and I label it as such in the book. So it's interesting to think about what it would mean if it's true and if it's false. And if, if this is false, then I think that means that ultimately physics is going to hit a roadblock beyond which we can't proceed any farther, because all the progress we've made in physics has come from ultimately discovering new mathematical patterns and regularities. Nature has kept giving us new mathematical clues. Oh, wow, we found Maxwell's equations. Oh, wow, we found the Schrodinger equation, right? If it's ultimately wrong that our universe is completely mathematical, then we'll get to a point where we still don't understand what's really going on, but we, we never find any more clues because there are no more to find, and we're stuck. However, if this hypothesis is true, then there is no roadblock, and uh, our ability to ultimately keep understanding our cosmos better and better is only going to be limited by our own imagination which I think is the optimistic view. And frankly, if you just want to be practical about this, I think it's a much better working hypothesis that it is possible because there's no better way to fail in any endeavor in life, as you know, than to convince yourself a priori that what you're trying to do is impossible and therefore not to try, right? So um, let's keep looking for more mathematical <laughs> regularities. Well, you know, it's funny, Max. I, I, I think I may have mentioned this to you in a previous conversation, but um, I've um, interviewed a lot of physicists and mathematicians, and I've been searching for a true Platonist, someone who believed in the fundamental reality of things that are normally thought of as abstract, as conceptual, like mathematics. And, well, you found one. Yeah, and even mathematicians who you'd think would be disposed in that direction are a little bit shy about admitting to it. But um, for a physicist, the only other one I've talked to who I think would go that, that far would be Roger Penrose. I don't know if you and he are on the same wavelength there, but um, it's a bold thing to do. And um, once again, it, it, it seems to me that what you do, your, your way of thinking is to take the fundamental propositions extremely seriously and uh, pursue them to their, their logical conclusion, no matter how strange it may sound. That's, a, that's exactly my strategy that I've always used in life for doing science. And I, I think it's a, a great strategy, taking some assumptions and just working out what they imply, you know, regardless of whether they ultimately turn out to be true or false, actually. It's just a very good thing to do, because um, it's ultimately the failure to do that which has delayed so many great discoveries in science much longer than necessary. Yeah, Steven Weinberg actually once joked that the, the biggest problem with uh, theoretical physicists is not that they take their ideas too seriously, but they don't take them seriously enough uh -huh. to work out the consequences and figure out the experimental tests. So, for example, uh, when Einstein wrote down his equations of general relativity, right, he could have, if he had taken his own ideas really seriously, figured out, oh, it's really hard to get an, a static universe here, so it's most likely that our universe is expanding or, or, or contracting, and then we, they could, he would have predicted this great thing. <laughs> but he didn't have the faith to take that seriously enough. He fell prey to his own preconception that our universe is unchanging, and instead the credit for this went to Friedman and Lemaitre later on. Similarly, after that, again, you know, George Gomov was the first person who really had the guts to just take seriously the idea that you could 
apply plasma physics and nuclear physics to the baby universe and work out what actually happened very early on. And he predicted that there should be this cosmic microwave background and that the our whole universe should once have been a hot fusion reactor and so on, which is now completely established and mainstream, right? But for many years, nobody did this because they were too afraid. They were like, be worried, like oh, no, that's too arrogant, you know, to do such a great extrapolation. We, we can't do that. <laughs> the only thing that's arrogant is to make an extrapolation and take for granted that it's going to work. It's always a good idea to make the extrapolation, do your homework, and actually figure out what it predicts, and then go test it. And that's what I want to do. So, Max, um, what is the relationship between the Level 4 multiverse, the Tegmarkian mathematical multiverse, and the other three that we've talked about, Level 1, Level 2, Level 3? If they all exist, then they're nested like Russian dolls. So within the Level 4 multiverse, which is the entire physical reality, there's a small part of it, which is the Level three multiverse quantum mechanics which has within it a bunch of level two multiverses which have within it them a bunch of level one multiverses within which you'll find galaxies and solar systems planets and people and so on all the way down so it's this grand hierarchy and and with each um you know new revelation along that path what we humans think of as everything gets smaller and smaller and smaller. I mean, what we humans know, what we consider to be uh, our world, gets smaller and smaller and smaller. Yes and no. When you say it like that, it sounds so depressing. <laughs> but I actually would like to end on a more optimistic note there. First of all, it's becoming very clear that most of this vast reality that exists physically is a giant desert where with with nothing complex enough to allow any kind of life. So just because it's big doesn't mean that we should feel bad about our part of space. This might be one of the most life-friendly places that there is. And, and second, just because we people are smaller than the level 4 multiverse, just because you personally are smaller than the planet Jupiter, <laughs> that shouldn't in any way dent your self-confidence and make you feel bad about your own significance either. Because you know, why is it that, for example, the Andromeda galaxy is beautiful? It's because here on Earth, particles have come together into these incredibly elaborate patterns, brains, which have this magical property of consciousness so they can actually be aware of the Andromeda galaxy. We can see it with our telescopes. So the Andromeda galaxy is only beautiful because somebody is aware of it. If we weren't here looking at it, it wouldn't be beautiful at all. If nobody was aware of it, it would be a giant waste of space as far as I'm concerned. And I think of not our universe giving meaning to us, but rather us conscious beings giving meaning to our universe. So I don't think we should ever feel insignificant just because we're small. I think this tiny conscious part of reality is what really matters and gives meaning to everything else. You know, I th but I think it's a challenge to human vanity, uh, at least the idea that we as individuals, you, Max Tegmark, me, Robert Polly, are unique. Um, the level one multiverse alone contains potentially infinitely many copies of us and variants thereof. Hmm. <laughs> well, if, if this makes us humans a little bit more humble... I think that's a good thing. That's maybe not so humility. bad. But at the same time, I think it's very clear that our, us existing here and being consciously aware of what happens is the most is significant and meaningful thing in our reality. And in fact, 
it's the only thing that's meaningful because meaning comes precisely from this. So we shouldn't feel bad at all about us being small. And instead, I think we should feel really good about ourselves for having been able to figure out so much about this marvelous cosmos that's out there. I mean, come on, who would have thought 30,000 years ago when we were sitting around eating bananas, you know, that we would one day be able to figure out so much about this grand cosmos out there and figure out, in fact, so much about how nature worked that we could even use this understanding to build technology to make our lives much more fulfilling. Indeed, that is that is maybe the most uh, amazing thing of all, that we are the ostrich with its head in the sand that has nonetheless managed to map <laughs> the world. <laughs> and the most amazing thing of all we've discovered is that rather than being the pinnacle of evolution, <laughs> we are at the beginning of, of something which could be vastly more awesome than anything we've seen yet, because there's absolutely no law of physics saying that this big dead space we see up there, or dead as far as we can, we've seen so far at least, couldn't one day be teeming with life that could have originated from here. And we don't just have tens or hundreds of years at our disposal. We have billions and billions, and 10 to the 57 times more volume at our disposal than we've used so far. Right? So there's an incredible future potential for life that we are the gatekeepers of. So in this cosmic perspective, I feel we're very significant, and this actually puts more pressure on us to not blow it and go extinct on this planet, but try to actually be good stewards of the opportunity we've got and um, do great things with it. You're reminding me that, you know, far from uh, concluding that we are meaningless and uh, insignificant, you have co-founded something called the Future of Life Institute, uh, along with Anthony Aguirre uh, and others, which uh, is uh, addressed to sort of existential threats to humanity, right? Exactly. It's very much in this spirit. We feel that uh, we are really at a fork in the road now after 13.8 billion years in this universe where we have the technology to annihilate ourselves and go extinct and also the technology to do much greater things. And we really feel that life is a wonderful thing that we would like to continue, hence the name Future Life Institute. And more concretely, when we love technology, I work in a university that even has technology in the name, right, in every single way in which... 2015 is better than the Stone Ages because of technology. But whenever we humans invent a new technology that's more powerful, it gives us both opportunities to do great things and also new opportunities to need to screw up. And there's a going on with any technology between the power of the technology and the wisdom with which we use it. And we have to make sure the wisdom always stays one step ahead. It didn't matter so much with simple technologies like fire because you can only do so much damage and you could figure out the wisdom later, like invent the fire extinguisher, right? Whereas with nuclear weapons being more powerful, it's much more important to develop the wisdom early. And with even more powerful technologies like artificial intelligence, which might one day eclipse our own intelligence, we really have to get things right the first time. And, uh, in fact, because of that, we're in the midst now of, of launching this big uh, research program that was generously funded by Elon Musk, uh, where we're helping people around the world to get together and ask, what research can we do right now which will inc- which will um, help us get the benefits of artificial intelligence while avoiding pitfalls. 
Well, Max, uh, whatever we do to ourselves down here on Earth, I am satisfied after this conversation that life will go on in some parallel universes out there, whether we do or don't ourselves. It has really been great talking to you. Well worth the wait. I've been looking forward to it for quite a while. So thanks a lot, Max. Thank you. It's been a great pleasure. Woke up lost in a world I didn't know. I shook it off and I'm trying to make a go. Ever get the feeling that the story isn't done? And you know that you are not the only one. Max Tegmark is a professor of physics at MIT and the author of Our Mathematical Universe, My Quest for the Ultimate Nature of Reality. You've been listening to The Seventh Avenue Project, a radio show that I have had trouble describing in the past, but now I have three good words for it. I'm Robert Polly. I'll be back next week, and you can always visit us online at SeventhAvenueProject.com. All things being equal, I'd rather not forget the things I've seen and the people that I've met. But something down inside me makes me think there's something more. And I don't have any proof, but I'm sure. And I know you're out there somewhere, and I know that you are well. Looking for an answer, but only time can tell parallels. Parallel